Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, welcome to New Books Network. I'm Priyam Sinha, the host of today's interview with Dr. Karthik Nair. He's an assistant professor of film studies at Temple University in Philadelphia. His first book, Seeing Things, is about horror films made in 1980s Bombay and is out with the University of California Press in February 2024. Dr. Nair is one of the core editors of Bioscope, South Asian Screen Studies. His writing has also appeared in the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies, Film Quarterly, Discourse, Quarterly Review of Film and Video, The New Inquiry, and India Today. You can read about his journey into film studies and horror cinema in an essay he recently wrote for the Los Angeles Review of Books, titled, It's not just film studies. Today, he will tell us about his very fascinating, recently published book, Seeing Things, Spectral Materialities of Bombay Horror. First of all, heartiest congratulations to you, Dr. Nair, and thank you very much for accepting our invitation. Thank you, Priyam. I'm a fan of New Books Network, and the pleasure is all mine. Really looking forward to this conversation with you because I know we have overlapping interests as well. Thank you. It is an honor to have you here with us to discuss your pioneering study of body genres in Indian cinema. Seeing things is such a thought-provoking and exhaustive ethnographic investigation of Bombay's horror films of the 1980s. In its unfolding of India's creative media industries, the book foregrounds the historicity, materiality, production practices, and assemblages unique to horror films and offers a unique way of feeling the world of production inside the representations of cinematic horror. First of all, can you tell our listeners about your journey into academia? Sure. I'm a scholar of film studies at Temple University in Philadelphia. I teach a range of courses in my department, and this semester I'm teaching the introductory undergraduate course, Introduction to Film Analysis, to freshmen. 
But 20 years ago, in the early 2000s, I myself was a first-year undergraduate student of English literature at Delhi University. It was a formative period in many ways. The first time I felt at home in a classroom, many of my best friends today are people I met then. And I think many people listening can relate to that first encounter with criticism, analysis, with deconstruction in a formal setting. It was an absolutely top-notch education. Um, I remember reading, you know, The Mill on the Sloss, Pride and Prejudice, and discussing these books. But I remember also being fascinated with the fact of their appearance in Norton Critical Edition. You know, I was just enamored of these Norton Critical Editions, the annotations and scholarly essays that appeared at the end. Um, it made it possible to think that there were people doing this kind of work for a living. And as I moved from a bachelor's in English literature to a master's at Delhi University, I also came to appreciate the worldview critical edition, you know, which were approachably priced, published out of Delhi, and the people writing in them were professors I had known at Delhi University. So it made this way of life feel far less remote and more real to me. But as I was moving through my formal education in literature, something else was happening too. I had just watched my first really scary horror film, which was Wes Craven's Scream, on a video compact disc or VCD, as we then called it. Now, Scream is a scary horror film. You've seen it, I'm sure. Um, but it's also a meta horror movie about horror movies I had never seen. So we see savvy American high school students hanging out at the video store and analyzing John Carpenter's 1978 horror film, Halloween. And to me, the shock of that film was visceral, but also intellectual. And, and I wrote about this recently for the Los Angeles Review of Books. We talk about jump scares in horror films a lot. But the biggest surprise of that film was understanding that there was a way of life out there in which adults talked about film seriously. I wanted to know more. And my college library in Delhi had a JSTOR subscription. It didn't take me long to find an essay that would change everything for me. And this was Carol Clover's essay on films like Halloween, what she called Flasher Film. It's still, I think, my most treasured printout to the PDFs file because it was proof that there were people out there doing what I wanted to do. So my introduction to academia was via films like Halloween and Scream. Film studies was in its very first, I would say, incarnation for me, horror film studies. And I remember my very first conversation with a film scholar, that is someone formally trained in the discipline, was about Carol Clover and horror film studies. That conversation was with Ranjani Mazumdar who at the time was setting up a cinema studies department inside the School of Arts and Aesthetics at JNU with Ira Bhaskar. So after completing my master's in literature at Delhi University, I was admitted into the MPhil program in cinema studies at JNU. And here we are 20 years later. Amazing, amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And I'm sure all our listeners would be very excited to know so much about it. So Bollywood is usually associated with studying stardom, audiences, or even song and dance cultures. What prompted you to study the same cinema, but just focusing on the horror films? And why did you choose the 1980s? What made that time period your point of investigation? So when I applied to the MPhil at Cinema Studies at JNU, I needed a project proposal. I knew it would be a project on horror. But what's remarkable is horror film studies had gotten by then. You know, Carol Clover's essay on films like Halloween described them as being, quote, at the bottom of the horror heap, completely disreputable and drenched in taboo. 
But by the 2000s, Halloween and films like it had risen to the top of the heap. There was nothing disreputable about studying them anymore. And horror had become, I would say, the most studied film genre inside academia. So I knew that if I was going to make a contribution to this subfield, I would have to broaden our sense of that heap of horror films. Now, Halloween is probably the most celebrated horror film released in 1978. But there's another horror film released that year that you and our listeners ought to know about. The Hindi language film, Darwaza or Door, produced in Bombay by the seven siblings known as the Ramsey Brothers. Now, this was a film marketed as India's first horror film. And I see it as kicking off a cycle of films called Bombay Horror through the 1980s. Now, this makes the origins of Bombay Horror in the late 70s kind of contemporary with some of the most celebrated films in the horror film canon. The Spiria by Dario Argento, Rabbit by David Cronenberg, The Hills of Eyes, Wes Craven, Halloween, I Spit on Your Grave, Alien, Cannibal Holocaust, and 1980s The Shining by Stanley Kubrick. Bombay Horror seemed to me to be widely remembered in India, yet relatively uncanonized inside histories of horror. Almost nothing had been written on the films in the books I was reading. So as I write in the introduction to the book, Bombay Horror is a reminder that the horror film was different things in different places at different times. And this kind of film was what the genre was for most Indian movie goers in the 1970s and 80s. Narita Gopalan has written about the masala form of Bombay cinema, right, which interrupts dominant conventions of, let's say, mainstream narrative cinema seen in other parts of the world. And Bombay Horror 2 interrupts the conventions of horror, right? These films generate the states of fear, anxiety, and disgust that we associate with with horror, but also, you know, romance, comedy, action. So they move you through a cycle of feelings that you can feel horror in juxtaposition to other people. And they also kind of imitate the foreign conventions of flasher films and satanic horror films to subvert Bollywood or Bombay cinema's native convention of music, song and dance, marriage, family. So you will get a serial killer who cuts off a love song, a werewolf who pounces on wedding procession, a curse that kills a young mother. The films are also a very interesting archive of the strategies by which forms of difference have survived inside global culture industries like Hollywood or Bollywood. So I would say my project began as a recuperative project, but as I did more research at JNU, my interest in the films changed. It was no longer about canonizing them but staying with their uncanonizability longer. The 1980s are often seen as a period of industrial, aesthetic, moral failure in the history of Hindi cinema, and no one knows quite what to do with this messy debt. And Bombay horror, in a way, was the most sensational of these failures. A genre most Bombay-based and national film critics would call cheap imitations of foreign horror films. So as I went about interviewing filmmakers, including the Ramsey brothers, and tracking the film's circulation, I became more interested, you know, in what studying these so-called failures revealed about our understanding of the horror genre, about how it operated, and what real worlds lie beneath the other otherworldly stories of horror. Thank you. That's very exciting. And that also brings me to the next question, which is basically the title of your book. You call it Seeing Things, and I was wondering why you would associate horror film genres mm. with seeing and not maybe feeling, listening, sensing, experiencing, or even producing? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. And I would say I associate 
the horror film genre with all of the things you listed. Feeling, listening, sensing, experiencing. To me, the title seeing things is able to capture that broader terrain because the thingliness of seeing suggests that seeing is not just a purely optical process, but involves many other senses that are the tactile senses, right? It's called seeing things because in a way, eventually that's all I was doing while I was watching the film. So I carried the project on Bombay Horror with me from JNU to NYU, specifically to a PhD program in cinema studies at New York University. And the more I watched the films over and over, the less they felt to me like compelling illusions or merely symbolic stories. I was noticing things, uh, makeup effects that seemed botched or continuity errors and misplaced props, damage in the film print. But horror film studies, like film studies in general, um, did not quite give me a full language to describe what I was seeing or how to make sense of it. So the book is called Seeing Things Also in a Tribute to the Heroes and Heroines of Bombay Horror and Horror in General. These young men and women would often notice something strange but not know how to describe it or understand its significance. Yet these very kind of spectral visions turned out to have material histories behind them. Ghosts that call out to be recognized because something real happened here, right? And so I became quite convinced that these things I was seeing were of use and significance, not only to me, but to horror film studies. Let me explain. I think horror film studies, as you know, evinces an overwhelming desire to redeem horror film as meaningful cultural text. This was a genre that was disparaged for so long as lowbrow, right? Uh, that the main line of inquiry, I think, for many of us who teach horror films has been to just get us past the gory, violent, or unseemly surface of the film to, to argue that there is a kind of profound meaning buried inside the symbolic form of the genre. This was Robin Wood's kind of important contribution to the field when he wrote that horror films are the quote, return of the repressed, of all that a civilization disavows. Right? Now, this reading strategy, we all employ it when we teach. It's been tremendously productive. It has the field become so rich. But as a consequence, I feel I've been trained better on how to decode the horror film as a nightmare, how to read beneath its surface as a symbolic form, rather than engage with the film surface, you know, as textured and gory and gnarly as that surface may be. So my dissertation at NYU was me spending almost a decade grappling with that surface of Bombay horror. At the time, you know, I was strongly encouraged by many people who would hear about the project to simply offer an explanation for why Bombay Horror emerged when it did. I didn't think I was equipped to answer that question, nor was I particularly interested in answering that question. And luckily for me, those answers were quickly offered by others. So while I was completing my dissertation, Mahali Sand's book on uh, the supernatural genres of Bombay cinema came out. And she has this excellent argument in the book where she, where she makes the claim that the horror films of the 1980s are kind of symptomatic of the unraveling political fabric of the country. Right? At the same time, Valentina Vitali, in a broader book on transnational genres, makes an argument that horror films emerge in the 1980s because they allowed certain kinds of undeclared capital to move through the production pipeline. Right Now, these may seem like two very different explanations of why Bombay horror emerged when it did. But I see my book as working to provide the smaller link between these kind of political, economic, and psychoanalytic cultural explanation of why horror happened. Right? Put simply, I would say, for the repressed to return on screen, it first had to be expressed in, as, and through the filmic medium. 
it's in the physics of filmmaking that we can see the convergence of industrial and psychic forces to produce the surface of Bombay horror. So in other words, my concern was never so much why horror, but how horror. So the book is also called Same Things because it was a methodological choice to ask how questions about the materiality of the films rather than why questions about their symbolic form. And just as a way to finish my answer here, I want to tell you a little bit about the book's cover, which you may have seen, um, and I'm holding it up for Priyam to see, but I encourage everybody to check it out. It's a beautifully designed cover by my friend Francis Rousseau, who designed it using a song booklet for the 1979 film Johnny Dushman. And Francis was really able to render my, my major argument visual and visceral. So the typeface of the book title and the text seeing thing seems to be both on top of and under the streams of blood that you see flowing out of a monster's eye down the page. And as you're looking at that blood flowing out, you may feel that you're looking at drops of blood, but also something more. So in the way that the blood drips out of the corner of an eye and into the spaces between letters and the text, you might feel like it's paint that is being squeezed out of a tube and falling in folds over the canvas on which poster artists often painted film posters. In other words, your eyes may be seeing things, right? They're both palpable to you as things we see with, but also as seeing the tactile, physical terrain that undergirds fantastical fiction. And it's a it's a poster for Johnny Dushman and forming onto the bottom corner of the uh, the cover and the film song booklet is a claw, right? And I make the argument in the book that that claw is also a kind of tactile or physical manifestation of the hand of the censor. And I know we're going to talk about censorship a little bit more. Um, so just as you see the, the claw forming out of negative space at the bottom of the cover, the hand of the censor also can become visible within the horror film at kind of physically forming the global conventions of the genre. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Thank you. That actually makes me see your book a lot more differently while you have provided an like elaborate explanation of the visuals and the materiality of it. So another interesting aspect uh, that caught my attention was the role of the censor board. Uh, the, uh, the Central Board of Film Certification of in, in India has most commonly been thought of with regard to regulating obscenity and religious-themed content. You explore their relative contribution in the production and circulation of the horror genre. I was wondering if you could tell us more about how differently it operates in this case, how the censors were making, unmaking, or even remaking Bombay's horror films? Sure. Um, in the period that I was studying, at least for half of it, 
uh, what we know as the CBFC, the Central Board of Film Certification, was known also as the Central Board of Film Censors. And today, uh, the CBFC must certify every film re- for release in Indian theaters. Right? Sometimes the CBFC may refuse to clear a film, which is called a ban, or require the film to be modified before it is certified in an acceptable form. So the question that occupied me was what happens to this mission to make films acceptable to the public when it encounters a genre whose reason for existing is to be unacceptable, right? To make money by transgressing taboo in ways that are imagistic or thematic or narrative. And so what I would say the unusual choice organizes the book structure. Um, the book, you know, it chronicles the production censorship and circulation of horror films in the 1980s. But the way in which I tell that story is it's partially inverted or scrambled. I actually begin with censorship and by recounting what happened when the first films in the Bombay cycle, Darwaza from 78 and Jani Dushman from 79, were submitted for clearance to the Indian government in the late 70s. So my contention here is that material acts by the government censor body in this originary moment for Bombay Horror, shifted the shape of what Bombay Horror was and would become in the years to come. That censorship produced Bombay Horror as we would come to know it. Right Now, I'm not the first to make this kind of argument. The excellent work of so many scholars of censorship, including Lotte Hook and Monica Mehta in the South Asian context, encouraged me to look for the productive effects of this kind of regulatory encounter. Let's take the example of Jani Dushman. Now, the government offered many reasons for refusing to clear the film. That it was superstitious, that it was misogynistic, that it depicted graphic violence, that it caught pointless against women. But the form of all these objections was the same, right? which was that the government instructed or required interventions into the physical film for the removal of selected frames or the addition of other frames. This intervention was not merely reductive, but generative, right? Because it remade sequences temporally and spatially. It rendered certain sequences incomprehensible. And the repeated violations of the film strip also disturbed the structural integrity of film stock. So what you see as you watch the film are surreal, really odd shapes, lines, and colors forming as you watch the film. And you are experiencing these lines and shapes and colors no less superstitiously, viscerally, or sensationally than the images that the sensor wanted removed. Because you're looking at things that don't seem to have an explanation on screen. So the state's regulatory effort, or the effort to make the films less horror, had also kind of imbued them with a new kind of horror. And it thickens the experience of horror with a different kind of corporeality. And the high-profile battle over Jani Dushman eventually caused horror filmmakers to shift their strategies in the decade that followed, right? And that's something I take up in the chapters that emerge after, is not only the material intervention into one specific film, but the predictive changes made by filmmakers as they seek to continue to make horror films in the shadow of censorship. Thank you. Uh, I was also very excited by your discussion uh, on the the contribution of prosthetics artist, as you just mentioned about materiality, this becomes a lot more relevant. So within the limited scholarship that even 
acknowledges the role of prosthetics prosthetics artists are most mostly considered as a subset of costume designers and makeup departments so i'm sure our listeners would like to know more about their role as distinct filmmaking practitioners as you've discussed in your book and i can see the smile on your face because this is also an area of great interest to you and i would actually love to hear your thoughts on this as well um for me the role of the prosthetics artist which is kind of special makeup as it was known in the nomenclature around bombay horror in this period was central to understanding what it is that makes up horror in in bombay horror um prosthetics as a technology used by horror film was widespread in the global diffusion of horror in the 1980s um now think about it an essay that you love and that I love, which is Linda Williams' essay on body genre, was published in 1991, right? And in that essay, Linda Williams makes the argument that there are body genres, such as horror, comedy, pornography, melodrama, that move the viewer via overt displays of the human body. But if you think about the fact that it was published in 1991, that argument makes a lot more sense because the decade of the 1980s was unleashing on people like Linda Williams and many other viewers many horror films in which the overt display of the human body was a kind of central feature of film. So you can think of a film like The Thing from 1982, Reanimator, Stuart Gordon's film from 85, The Fly, David Cronenberg's film from 1986. These were known as body horror films because they showcased bodies undergoing almost impossible transformation. But in so doing, they also became showcases for the craft of special makeup artists. Savini, Baker, Smith, Wallace. If your listeners are able to give these names any kind of meaning, it's because their names had marquee value. These were makeup artists uh, who were widely known in the period. They were extensively profiled in magazines like Fangoria and City Fantastique. Um, their names would often appear on film posters and in advertising. And they went to great lengths to describe what they were doing for horror films as an art, um, as a creative process of working with things like foam, latex, and other makeup material. At the same time, in a different part of the world, so in the 1980s Bombay film industry, there was a generation of horror makeup artists, such as Srinivas Roy. But no magazine interviews or production stills really archive their existence. The book, therefore, relies on my own interviews with these artists, as well as the films they made, to track the role played by their craft in the production of Bombay Horror. One of the arguments I make is that as censorship-targeted graphic violence, filmmakers shifted their attention to other means of generating horrific affect via the mise-en-scene, right? The totality of what appears within the frame, including makeup effects and gothic steps. Um, so to give you an example, Virana, which is a film I write about in this part of the book, opens with some incredible sequences of horror, including one in which uh, a churel stabs a man to death. Now, what's really interesting about that sequence, I wish we could watch it together, but I suggest anyone who's interested go on YouTube and find the film, is as she's stabbing this victim, the camera pulls back to avert your gaze from this act of graphic violence. And on the soundtrack, the repeated act of stabbing is accompanied not by the sound we understand to be the sound of the knife pun- punching skin, but of the dishum dishum sound we associate with punching. 
And so there's a way in which filmmakers themselves acknowledged that there were strategies by which they could deflect censorship, right? And the kind of depiction of graphic violence by um, disavowing what they themselves were showing. And another way in which they generated horror in that sequence was therefore not through the graphic act of stabbing, but through the makeup effects of the Jurel. Right. So this turn to makeup effect was the context in which a generation of makeup artists rose to central role on the horror film set. And they were working with really new and exciting material um, to engineer witches, vampires, other monsters. Yet as the book shows, um, these materials were also unpredictable, uh, unstable, um, and special effects could sometimes exceed this kind of craft. So in the chapter on Virana, I discuss how a mask was botched during production and may have been filmed as it was latched onto the sweaty skin of its young star. And this anecdote about the accident, while it's suggested by the film, was actually narrated to me by a hairdresser who worked on the film. This one woman's memory of the accident um, disclosed something about the gendered nature of film work. Um, because, you know, it is a gendered ideology of disgust that produces the churel on screen, but it is the work of men, specifically makeup artists, in transactions with male filmmakers applying latex to the body of a woman star that produces the churel on screen. Yet it is the memory of the hairdresser, the one woman on set, that also remembers this not as craft, but as an accident or failure, Right. Um, and so it was very interesting to me to have the anecdote open up a way of thinking with the materiality of filmmaking beyond the masculine control of makeup artists. And that botched effect, I argue, is also palpable on screen. So it charges our sense of this quote-unquote body genre with the sense that there are multiple bodies implicated in the production of any one body on screen. The bodies of actors, makeup artists, hairdressers, whose efforts are then encrypted inside Bombay Horror. Thank you so much uh, for that answer because that also reminds me of Ranjini Mazumdar's book on invisible labor and multiple laboring bodies that go mm -hmm. into crafting this one sp unique spectacle on screen which we often discuss as the star. So mm -hmm. uh, when we talk about the star as the branded affect, we also s often overlook these multiple yes. laboring bodies yes. that construct yes. it. Great. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was also very excited um, in thinking of the striking aspect that your argument about the transfiguration of bodies and the role of these multiple laboring bodies in producing the, uh, the effects of horror. So could you tell us more about the risks and rewards involved in such material practices? Absolutely. And I'm going to piggyback on what you just said. So there is a kind of rich and growing body of scholarship uh, on Bombay cinema and India's creative media industries in general, which draws our attention to what we might call labor or work and the many kinds of bodies um, and technologies that are implicated in the production of spectacle on screen. Right, So we have Rajini Mazumdar's very useful formulation of invisible work, but we also see in Claire Weber's work, in uh, Devashree Mukherjee's book, Bombay Hustle, in Usha Ayur's book on dance and Hindi cinema, a kind of broader orientation towards thinking with questions of ecology, process, 
practice. Mm-hmm. And I find that the most useful way to relate these things to my study is to maybe talk about that accident a bit more that I just mentioned um, from the sets of Virana. Now, in her book, Bombay Hustle, Debashi Mukherjee has a really kind of succinct and useful definition of practice, right? She says practice is a repetitive uh, activity oriented towards the future, right? So it's a kind of productive, repetitive act that's oriented towards producing something. And we can think of filmmaking as made up of so many practices, right? And makeup work is one of those practices, right? It's a kind of repetitive act of daily expertise that can predictably produce certain effects that we can call horror. And in the book, I track how you can see the practice of makeup effects improving from film to film and from year to year just by looking at the film and the same artists who worked on them, right? And so kind of practice becomes a relayer or intertextual uh, transfer of skill. Now, we can also, however, pay attention to another term in in Devishri Mukherjee's definition of practice, which is repetitive, right? Um, Bombay Horror pushed the idea of practice as repetitive to a particular kind of extreme because it is completely um, unsurprising to those of us who studied low-budget filmmaking to know that things are used repeatedly, right? So props are repeated. Um, in this case, masks may have been used repeatedly. And one of the things I found myself hypothesizing about was why the mask got stuck to the skin of the actress during the filming of Virano. And it may have been that the mask was improperly cleaned between its users. It may have been many others. But what we get then is a kind of repetition that pushes something to break down. Right? It produces an unpredictable future. So practice also contains within it a kind of potential for surprise, right? Um, and so you get a moment of breakdown or failure rather than the successful achievement of an effect. Um, and so that is more of the risk involved in what is typically a rewarding process, right? Which is makeup effect. And in that moment of breakdown of thinking with um, the kind of corporeality of the event, I also found it very useful to look at Usha Ayer's work on um, the on-screen body. You know, uh, uh, Ushair's work is more on dance, but she, her overall argument is that any screen body is a composite of many other bodies, right? And so in the case of the dancing woman on screen, it may be something as literal as a cut to dancing feet, which we may know are the feet of dub, right? Um, but she also makes the argument that the, the dance master, who is always off screen, is as much implicated in the body on screen. And so to me, my theorization of body genre shifted as I began to think of this kind of intercorporeal reality of many bodies who are implicated in not only in the production of makeup effects, but in the generation of these accidents. That then it is formed the horrific aspect of horror, right? Because one of the things that I argue makes the churel of Mirana horrific to me is never knowing quite who was responsible for what or what it is I'm looking at when I'm looking at the chair on screen. Because all I see is latex under or over a body moving without being able to identify where that effect ends and human skin begins, whose body it is that's under the skin. Um, and you could kind of hear the sound of somebody laboredly breathing. But of course, that's been added in post. And so there are these kind of mysteries that accumulate the more you want to do a very specific corporeal history 
that I find really, really useful to think of. Thank you. Uh, that's a very fascinating insight in terms of how important transfiguration is within the concept mm-hmm. of horror film genres in itself and how distinct mm-hmm. that is from even Usha Iyer's work while she talks about the body as a spectacle while dancing. Mm-hmm. So uh, my next question would be, uh, videos play a central role in your book. So could you tell us more about how video cassettes matter in the story of Bombay Horror? Sure. And I think we're tracking now towards kind of the latter half of the book. Um, so the horror genre has always been on the vanguard of media revolution. And here I'm, you know, obviously leaning on the work of people like Caitlin Benson a lot, who have shown how niche audiences, small filmmakers, alternative taste communities gathered around new media forms like videotape and they help kind of shape the future of film culture ahead of more prestigious film genre. When commercial video cassettes first became available in 1980s India, the Bombay film industry was very divided on how to respond. Okay. And so this was a technology that was seen as threatening kind of monopolistic arrangements that elite film producers had with elite film distributors and exhibitors who ran the theater. And What's fascinating to me is that when I interviewed some of the filmmakers working inside the horror genre, including Mohan Bakri and Vinod Talbar, I got a very different story of their relationship to video than I would have gotten just from the kind of dominant rhetoric about video as set. Because these filmmakers were actually making deals with small video companies to circulate their film. And then to understand why that might have been happening, I needed to understand what theatrical film exhibition would look like in India in this period. And the problem, simply speaking, was that there were just not enough movie screens. Um, There have always been far too few built theaters in India to serve the quote-unquote world's biggest cinema audience, right? And this problem has always been more acute in the country's Hindi belt in northern and western India. There's just not enough theaters for most Bombay films to circulate. But what's fascinating, of course, is that in this very period of a huge shortage in the 80s, film production was also booming because, you know, just kind of to extend Valentina Vitali's argument, ever greater numbers of films were being made as a way to circulate capital. But where would these films be shown? Where could they play? Um, I note how the Ramsey brothers had carved up the, their share of what is called the B circuit, right? Um, the kind of maybe the second run circuit or working class theaters in major cities. Um for, for their competitors, there was the C circuit, right? Um, this is where damaged prints could head um, and play. But it was hard to recoup value from many of these theaters. Um, exhibition figures in India have always been hard to track. And it was definitely the case that in the C circuit, uh, money would flow back slower, right, to film producers. And so as an alternative to the C circuit, we can see video playing a really interesting role in this period. Um video would become the form in which many young viewers would first experience Bombay horror, right? And what's, of course, important to note is that horror would be the form in which many young Indians would first experience video. And films like Cheek, which is Bhakti's film from 85, helped me map what this form of experience was. Um, So we can see our young hero and heroine in one important scene hastening out of a movie theater to head home because they're done with watching movies in theaters. But at the same time, we can also see how the film addresses a video audience to, let's say, close or cropped composition, 
shedding depth of field, right? The kind of aesthetics of video that Lupus Hilda Brand and others have also noted. And the story I kind of tell as I as I end that chapter is, of course, a story in which the promise of video is eventually trumped by the peril, right? Because of the emergence of video piracy. And as the decade wears on, you can see in copies of Bombay Horror on videotape growing noise from multiple generations of copying. And that kind of foreshadows the economic demand of the genre as well. I was also fascinated by the way you frame the epilogue by calling it the archive of failures, while ending it on the note of the National Film Archive of India and the loss of horror film genres as an archive repository that may never be documented the same way. I'm sure our listeners would like to know more about the significance of National Film Archive of India in your scholarship and how the absence of such a repository would influence the future of studying Bollywood and film production cultures in India. That's a big question. It's an open question. I feel like the answer changes with each new headline we read about the National Film Archive. Um, so I begin and end the book in much the same way by discussing the opening of Bandarwaza. Now, Bandarwaza, or Closed Door, is a 1990 film from the Ramsey Brothers. It was widely considered an expensive flop. And the film begins with a vampire looking out into the night before he takes flight. Uh, and I draw attention to how in the moment that the film shows us what he's looking at, what we see is not the night, but a series of daylit hills. Right? And it's a, it's a blooper. It's, it's, it's momentary, it's fleeting, it's not important, it doesn't kill the film, but it's there all the same. Uh, and to me, that blooper provides a kind of initial moment of insight to begin to think how something comes unstitched as you're watching these films and an opening is created within the film for you to think not of the mythic time of vampires, but the history of filmmaking. And so, for example, another argument I make in the book is that the horror genre of the 80s seems to emerge, particularly in its gothic iconography of Haveli and faraway locations as a response to the costs of filming inside Bombay Studios in the 1980s. Um, this is a very volatile period of filmmaking, not only because of the relative scarcity of filmmaking materials, but also because a film work is becoming more and more politically mobilized. And so the workers' unions are striking often loudly uh, outside and inside studios. And so as a way to skirt around this kind of political mobilization, it's possible that lower budget filmmakers cho were choosing to leave Bombay and head out of the city to make films. And that may explain why the iconography of Bombay horror relies so much on existing Haveli located outside the city as well as seaside palaces several hours away. And so all of that is opened up just because I noticed one of the daylit hills outside Bombay in that one shot, right, of Bandarwaza. And so in a way, it kind of demonstrates the promise of failure. But the book also ends by coming back to the moment of failure and me re-watching that sequence, but this time not on YouTube, but on um, a recent re-release of the film from an original negative by the British cult film label Mondo Macabre. And this time when you're watching the film, you don't quite get the daylit hills, but you get a very beautiful inky twilight, right? And you, what that is, is the film has been correctly treated in post-production for day for night filmmaking. And so what I found fascinating in that moment is the DVD release of Bandarwaza actually begins with a title card that says, this film has been prepared from the best available elements 
with an effort to remove all, quote, minor picture fault. And this effort to restore horror to its proper performance is worthy. And I'm so grateful that the films can now circulate in a way that the filmmakers intended. But I could also sense then failures kind of methodological promise dimming that, right? Because now if there are no failures, uh, there's, there's less for me to do with these films. So the open question for us is what's going to happen to this kind of promise of failure. You know, failure has been recently at least an immensely promising um, subject for decolonial black and subaltern film historia, right? And I would point anyone to um, Catherine Russell's beautiful essay on Teresa Harris in the recent feminist media history, where she's just tracking a pet of what would be what we would call a continuity error in a Hollywood film, but pointing to how that continuity error encodes a history of racialization and work um, inside Hollywood. What happens when these failures disappear? Who does it matter to? Um, and so my argument in the book as I end it is that there's a different archive for those of us who are interested in failure, and that may not be in the proper archive, right? In the most prestigious archive, which restore film prints or preserve them beautifully, but on YouTube. And here I'm extending, you know, Kuhuta and Ruiz's conceptualization of YouTube as a pirate archive. Um, and what I find very productive about the pirate archive, where all kinds of users have uploaded all kinds of versions of film, is not only that each film now exists as a kind of multiplicity of versions or a version history, but that they carry with them traces of their material circulation and production in a way that the proper archive may not, right? And so for me, what's really productive is continuing to think with the forces of globalization that are making it possible for the failures to live on. Thank you. That actually gave a lot of questions for me, for me to even ponder about. And I'm sure our listeners would also be grappling with a lot of multiple ideas that the concept of failure actually brings to the table when one thinks about cinema and even the archives. So uh, you mentioned the distinctiveness of producing horror films, the economics and techniques that distinguish their making and circulation. I was wondering if you could tell us more about how that has changed over the years and how different it is in creating a spectatorial experience for an audience that is also now exposed to platform productions and internet-circulated media content. Mm, and I know that I want to hear from you as well about the contemporary moment because I think your work is speaking to us in a really, really interesting way. Um, I can tell you just quickly on my end, um, you know, in an, in an almost too neat way, the end of Bombay Horror seems to track with the emergence of what we call Bollywood, right? A global culture industry that's known for its song and dance spectacle in frictionless circulation around the world. And I write about how the forces of media globalization, including video piracy, satellite broadcasting, and eventually the internet, transformed the taste of audiences and filmmakers that killed Bombay Horror, right? But these same forces have also made it possible for Bombay Horror to live on, as we just discussed, in different ways. The practices of filmmaking have shifted. The aesthetics of filmmaking have shifted. You know, Mehali Sand in Haunting Bollywood, Shaunak Sand has an essay on um, uh, digital uh, ghost. Sangeeta Gopal in her book um, Conjugation has an argument about contemporary horror. Vishnu Priya Ghosh has an argument about apartment horror. They've all written about the changing dynamics and textual address of more recent horror, right? These are catering to kind of multiplex 
uh, seated consumerist class unleashed by globalization. And so the film seemed to track uh, with their experience of urbanization and globalization in contemporary India. At the same time, the shift to digital visual effects has shifted the locus of work, right, of who is responsible for producing horror out of the hands of makeup artists to digital effects technicians. And this has broader implications for the identity of those who are making them, right? Uh, not only the identity of those who are uh, watching them, because this is a question of class, education, formal access um, of, of the people who are involved in the production of these. Um, and you can see a response to that in some of the nostalgia that's emerged around 80s horror. I'm thinking of like Asim Chandavir's continuing an incredible work on cults and affilia. There are amazing uh, Twitter and Instagram handles that do kind of imagine histories of Bombay Cinemas Park. Um, because these films and their conventions evoke some other history, not only of what has happened, but what could happen. And here I find myself going back again and again to Rosie Thomas's beautiful idea of the fantasy film genre, not only as a history of an alternative history of bomb of Indian cinema as the history of fantasy cinema, but a fantasy of other history of Indian cinema. Um, but I want to hear from you. What do you think has changed, and what do you find interesting about tracking contemporary um, economics and dynamics? I think one of the factors is something I drew from uh, Dejaswani Gandhi, who wrote in her epilogue, uh, who had interviewed Abhishek Chaube, and uh, she had written how the uh, social class and the writer's reflexivity or uh, based on belonging to the Indian middle class coming from the tier two and tier three cities mm-hmm. also changes the ways in which cinema is imagined and produced. And that is mm-hmm. something that also got a lot more um, reiterated often because I interviewed a uh, Abhishek Chaube, while he was not just a screenwriter, it was over a decade later. Mm. And this time he was also a director who was also exposed and equipped with the OTT and the platform productions and internet Mm. media. And for him, the emphasis of staging his presence as an Indian middle class filmmaker and his reflexivity as a screenwriter and a director, uh, asserting that he only writes to uh, the India that he has experienced, imagined, and Mm -hmm. been exposed to in order to strike out as different made me a lot more interested in understanding disability genres and which is also Mm -hmm. another component of body genres. And Mm -hmm. that also creates this notion of a new Bollywood that uh, Sangeeta Gopal and uh, and, um, even Tejaswini Ganti have briefly discussed Mm -hmm. about in their works but I see my work as an addition to this unique space where cinema is no more just limited to the big screen it is Mm -hmm. consumed across on the mobile phone so even for an editor it becomes that important to capture content in a manner that it sustains Mm -hmm. audiences interaction despite the devices changing and despite the size of the frames in which an audience is consuming the film. Mm, that's really great. And I think um, the industry's work is obviously so rich for you to think about the kind of extension into the new media assemblage. Um, and I've always found it productive to think with her kind of broader lesson that the audience is always a kind of discursive mediator with their film industry and what film industries think they're doing it for whom. 
And it's a big part uh, towards the end of the book when I'm discussing why it is that there's a long-standing perception even today that um, the horror films of the 1980s were made for a working-class male audience who sought out violent, sexually transgressive material and without discounting <clears throat> that proposition to show how actually that the assumption of who is watching these films has as much to do with the kind of material history of film circulation uh, was made possible by thinking with uh, Tejasri Ganti's work on discourses of film producers, the kind of discourse of distinction uh, and differentiation that they employ. And I, I'm, I'm sure she'll be thrilled to hear about this work. It's really rich. I mean, this uh, idea that now films are being made, keeping in mind almost a, a kind of diffusion of platform or so that the film is almost kind of screen agnostic, right? And we know that this has mattered to how compositions are handled, right? Objects are always centered within frame because you might be watching it on your phone rather than the kind of deep space composition. So in a way, it's a really beautiful extension of thinking with the video moment into the contemporary. That's really, really exciting. Thank you so much. So uh, thank you so much for your valuable time and insights. Uh, this uh, conversation has been amazing, knowing about your work and your book. So before we go, I'm sure our listeners would like to know about your future projects, books or articles you're currently working on. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I hesitate because I don't think I have a fully formed project. I have a feeling my interest in failure continues to grow. Um, and it's now getting delinked from any idea that one genre or one period is better for failure. I think failure is now a methodological choice I employ to look at any film. And this will be as true of Bombay Horror as recent big budget film as of classic Hollywood. You know, I just watched um, The Sound of Music on a big screen and notice glitches in the invisible style of editing, you know, when a kind of helicopter shot has to transition to a different kind of close-up, you actually notice the scene of the cut. But also I'm thinking of the recent film like RRR, which has been heralded as um, revolutionary in, in its deployment, cutting at visual effects, but noticing glitches in its deployment of crowd VFX or VFX shots of crowd, virtual, virtually generated digital crowd uh, on it. And I find that failure then is a very useful way to opt out of the hype of contemporary film and to think more about how glitches open out a way to think about film production today. Yeah. And they're especially useful today because the overall rhetoric from creative media industry is that we're moving towards an era of dematerialization, transcendence, disembodiment, virtuality, democratization. Right. But the more I spend time looking at these glitches, I'm able to feel the presence of human bodies who are involved in the making of these films. Whether they're virtual effects artists, production designers, body doubles, cinematographers, editors, right? Their performances, their movement, their gestures, their effort, their labor um, supplies the trace of motion that will eventually become a part of the story world, right? And so um, in recent work, I've been thinking more and more about different shots from RRR as both the performance of a kind of hyper-reality, but also a corporeality from behind the scene. Um, and I hope to have a kind of published version of that argument soon. I'm tentatively titling this project Forms in Motion, but I'll have more details for you, Priyam. So maybe we can have another conversation once that project is moving ahead. 
definitely thank you so much for your valuable time and the insightful conversation thank you so much priyam i really enjoyed it and uh, congratulations on all the exciting developments in your own work <laughs>